Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, it's only one week now till Christmas. Next weekend, many of us will be gathering together with our families. Some of us will be going over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house. Some of us won't be traveling quite so far. Uh, some of us will actually be opening up our homes and inviting our own family or extended family to join in the celebration with us. There's something about the Christmas season that kind of brings families together for good or for bad. <laughs> if you're a newlywed, you're learning new family traditions. Um, our son got married uh, this last uh, September, and so he and his new wife are going to Seattle for Christmas this year. We told them, okay, but next year it's our house, okay? You know, you've got to get the stuff down. For many of us, the Christmas season and family togetherness is, is a wonderful thing. We're looking forward to good times. We can hardly wait. For others of us, it's filled with tension and dread and apprehension, and we're not too sure we want to do this. And even though our families might be imperfect or some of our families even dysfunctional, God really designed the family for a purpose, to fulfill one of our greatest human needs and longings, that longing for belonging. And among the names that were attributed to the coming Messiah by the prophet Isaiah was the third in the series that we're looking at this weekend, Everlasting Father. His name will be called, Isaiah said, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the Apostle John kind of picked up on this idea and, and spoke about it, wrote about it this way. First John chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be, has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. In Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared to us was to destroy the devil's work. So those who are born of God will not continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. Because they have been born of God. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers or sisters. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John says there are implications to this idea of a heavenly father. There are some, there are some things to this idea that that Jesus has come to, to bring to us this sense of identity with Him. That is something that, to this idea of calling Him Father. And what I want to look at together with this morning with you and kind of unpack a little bit is this whole idea of what does it mean to call God Father? What does it mean to be adopted as His children? 
There's some very, very important things that John talks about here. The implications of all of this. The first is to understand that to call him father means he's given us an identity. God has given us identity. Each and every one of us have an identity given to us by our human parents. And now in him we have been given a new identity. John wrote about it this way. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. A new identity. Now in this room, every one of us has an identity that came from our human parents. Part of it has to do with our name. You were given a name. You, in fact, you were born into a family and given a family name. My family name is Jensen. Literally means Jensen's son. <laughs> That's my identity. Now, we haven't carried this tradition on in Danish circles for a number of generations, but it used to be somewhere way, way, way back, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was named Jens. And he had a son. And that was Eric Jensen, or whatever his first name was. We have been given a new identity by God. And we've been given also, by the way, a first name by our parents. My first name is Ken. Ken has a meaning to it. It means handsome one. Why are you laughing? That's not funny. <laughs> it's self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know how many of you read Dear Abby this, more, uh, this past week. Dear Abby actually had a whole column of people who wrote in about people whose names match their occupations. There's a whole column about it. Dear Abby, not long ago you wrote a column that mentioned funny names that match people's occupations. I'm submitting two more. Prior to our wedding, my husband and I had the state-required blood test. They were administered by Dr. Fix. And the minister who married us was aptly named Dr. Comfort. Dear Abby, one of my dearest friends is a professional landscaper of golf courses and highways and schools. His name? Ross Weed. Dear Abby, the first time I took my children for, to their doctor, their regular physician was on vacation. The doctor who was filling in for him was named Dr. Needle. I kid you not. Dear Abby, when I was in college, the disciplinary dean's name was Dick Justice. <laughs> Dear Abby, I am a nurse at a large hospital in central Wisconsin. We had a plastic surgeon named Dr. Hacker. And if that weren't enough, his resident was named Dr. Wacker. <laughs> Dear Abby, while I was serving in the Marine Corps schools at Quantico, Virginia, my best friend took me with him and he had a vasectomy. His physician's name was Dr. Neuter. Real name. Dear Abby, there's a dental hygienist in my city whose last name is Toothaker. <laughs> in Portland, Oregon, where I reside, there are three orthodontists. Dr. Payne, Dr. Fear, and Dr. Wrench. Dear Abby, my greatest nightmare of a, coll my greatest nox nightmare of a college textbook was in a class called History and Systems of Psychology. It was better than a sleeping pill. It put students to sleep in 10 seconds flat. The author... Edwin G. Boring. And the last one, dear Abby, my father, mother, and sister, we all say the same psychiatrist. And for more than 15 years, his name is Dr. Looney. God has given us a new name, a new identity. And just like our earthly parents gave us a name, God has given us something new. Not only that, but our earthly parents also gave us something more than just a name. They gave us an identity stamped on our DNA. 
How many here this morning are tongue rollers? If you don't know what that is, you can't raise your hand. Anybody else do this? Come on, you can stick your tongue out at me. You get permission, okay? That is a genetic trait. Not everybody can do that. My wife cannot do that. She tries, but she can't do it. We have fun with it, though. Anyway, um, that's another story. Your genes will determine your characteristics. Your genes will determine your eye color, your hair color. Your genes will determine whether you get to keep your hair or not. That is the genetic stamp that came from your parents. That was handed. You didn't have any choice in that. It was given to you. It is part of your character. There are also things that you learned by nurture growing up in your home. And your identity is coupled with those things that you got from your parents growing up. And one of the things that it means to call God Father is to understand He has now stamped His DNA on you. That's an incredible thought. Not just a name change, but a character transformation. 1 John 3, 1. He writes it as though he can scarcely believe this. Just look at it. We are called children of God. That's who we really are. That's an incredible thought. A new identity. A restored identity. God's identity given to us. Not just a name change, but character transformation. And the good news of the Christmas story is that is available to everyone. Jesus came, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And because of the birth of one little child, we are now given a new identity, his children. And that is available to each and every person who is willing to call him father and submit to his family rules and his family way of doing things. And if you're here this morning, you think, well, that can't possibly be for me. Just look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. I know people, you kind of, kind of skip over that part. But if you read the genealogies in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, you read the story of Jesus' family tree. And in that family tree, there are crooks, there are connivers, there are prostitutes, there are adulterers. There are great men of faith who had feet of clay and stumbled and fell. His family tree is filled with all kinds of stuff like that. So much so that Martin Luther wrote these words about the genealogies. It's as though God intended for people to hear this genealogy and say to themselves, Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. See, he even has them in his family tree. And if you're here this morning, you think there is no place for me with God. It is like Jesus is saying to you, Are you kidding? <laughs> Have you seen my family? <laughs> It's a new name. It's a new identity. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. What he is saying is that in his family, there is room for you and room for me. And that is the great message of Christmas. He has given us this new identity. And along with that, he has given us Intimacy. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Many of us in this room, when it comes finally down to Christmas Day, will overdo the spending. 
you'll get carried away and you will lavish on your kids presents they don't really need just because you love them. And what John is telling us is this great love that the Father has, He has lavished on us in that same way. He just keeps pouring out good stuff all over us. And in using this term Father, what God is doing is redefining the relationship. Because Father God was not a common picture in the Old Testament. God was someone to be feared, to be revered, to be adored, to be worshipped, but to also be obeyed and kept at a distance. So much so that the ancient Hebrews never spoke His name. We weren't allowed to. He is holy. He is other. His name cannot even cross our lips. And yet Jesus comes along and He speaks about a heavenly Father who cares for you like He cares for the grass of the field and the sparrows of the air. And He teaches His people to pray, Our Father in heaven. That is a brand new thought. In fact, one of the accusations of Jesus at his trial was that he called God Father. That's not allowed. And yet Isaiah prophesied about it centuries beforehand. His name will be called Everlasting Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, God sent his spirit, the Spirit of His Son into our lives, crying out, Papa, Father. Doesn't the privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain to you? You are not a slave, but a child. It is a relationally intimate term. The Aramaic is Abba. And it sounds just like it is. It's the first words of a baby saying, Papa. Abba. And he says, that is the spirit that Christ has sent into our hearts that we can now relate to God in such an intimate, intimate way that is beyond belief. And it's beyond even changing of our behavior. It's about relationship. Because God didn't come to give us a belief system. Nor did He come to give us some self-improvement program. He came to love us. That is the message of Christ's coming. God showed His love for us when He sent His only Son into the world to give us life. Real love is not our love for God, but His love for us. And that is the incredible thing. That the one who knows us best, loves us best. Not because we're particularly lovable. But simply because He has extended His love, His character to us. And that new sense of identity, and that new sense of, of, of intimacy brings along with it something else. It gives us a sense of security because it's the love of a parent. The love of a parent who will love you no matter what. See, that's the kind of love fathers and mothers have. They love their kids no matter what. Even when their kids think their parents are idiots and have no idea what real life is all about. Parents keep loving them because they know someday they'll understand. And that is the love of God for you and for me. It's an old saying that says, God loves you just the way that you are. And too much to let you stay that way. <laughs> and that is so true. In the security of this love relationship that He has for us, He begins to weed out from us that major impediment to that life of love, which is sin. 
And that's why John writes, God's children cannot keep on being sinful because His life-giving power lives in them and makes them His children so that they cannot keep on sinning. You see, ultimately what we need to understand, sin ultimately is the destroyer of love. It is the destroyer of relationships. Think of any sin that you can think of. Pride, selfishness, gossip, lying, greed. Think of any sin. You name it. And you'll be able to find a way in which it destroys relationship. It destroys love. Because ultimately, that's what sin is. It is contrary to the nature and character of our loving Heavenly Father. And we need to see sin in those ways. Eugene Peterson writes this. John knows that we will never get love right if we don't get sin right. And the looming difficulty in getting sin right is our propensity to deny or minimize it. Euphemisms proliferate. Mistake, bad call, poor judgment, error, wrong, negligence, slip, oversight, misstep, stupidity, screw up, bungle, faux pas, and so on. But rarely sin. We happen to live in a culture that has a low sense of sin. And a refusal to deal with sin is a refusal to deal with relationships. We can't love. Love is a relational act par excellence, just as sin is the derelational act par excellence. If I say that I do not sin or that sin is a minor, minor issue for me, in effect, I am saying love is not high on my agenda. Because ultimately, that's what sin is. It is destroyer of relationship. It destroys my relationship with my Heavenly Father. Destroys my relationship with those around me. The good news is, God won't give up on you. He loves you just the way that you are. And too much to let you stay that way. And as a father, one of the things fathers do is discipline. In the security of that relationship, He disciplines us. He teaches us. He guides us. Now, as a parent with my kids growing up, I never stopped loving my kids. But there were behaviors that I didn't like. <laughs> and I would always, when we would discipline our kids, we would always, uh, to the best of our ability, try to convey to them, I still love you, I just don't like the way you're acting right now. That's got to change. And you see, that's the difference between just discipline and punishment. Punishment has no end to it. Discipline does. Punishment has to do with, with, with wrecking havoc on what's already been done. Discipline has a forward-looking agenda. Discipline says there is a purpose to this. There is an end in mind. And I say that because very often I have people who say things to me, you know, when things go wrong in their life, God must be punishing me. I don't know what I did, but God must be punishing, for, punishing me for it. You don't understand your Heavenly Father. Because God does not just dole out punishment willy-nilly when He just feels like it. He doesn't play games with your lives, just kind of mess things up for you. He has a purpose in everything that He does. And His purpose is to form us and to shape us into the character of Him. Love. His chief end and His work in our life has to do with creating in us this propensity to love. This ability to love. To love Him, to love other people. My dear child, Hebrews 12, 
says, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God's work in our lives has an end. It has a desired outcome. And that is to restore in us this life of love. And he will put us in circumstances and bring people across our paths in which we will have to learn what this love looks like. And that's the beauty of his church family. You see, you cannot love in the abstract. It's impossible. It's why, by the way, the New Testament writers insisted on this flesh and blood Jesus. Because there were many Gnostic gospel writers who talked about a spirit God and and Jesus who couldn't really have been flesh and blood. Because those two don't mix. Spirit and flesh and blood. But the New Testament writers insist, no, he was a real person. Born like a human. Living like a human. God's love set in the context of the human life and experience so that we would learn to now live our human lives in the context of eternity. And that's what he is doing in our lives. We must love each other, John writes, because love comes from God. And when we love each other, it shows that we have been given new life. We are now God's children and we know him. He stamps his DNA on it, on us. And then he puts us in a church family where we must learn how to live out this love. And I know people who go from church to church to church because somebody upset them or somebody did something wrong or somebody didn't take care of them or someone. And they keep moving from place to place to place thinking they're going to find this perfect group of people. And it just ain't going to happen. Because the church is filled with people just like you. Imperfect, immature, selfish, prideful, and all the rest. And he says, now, learn to live like family. You get to pick your friends. You get stuck with your family. And your heavenly father says, these are the people you are stuck with for eternity. (laughs) Now learn to love them. Why? Because that is what God is doing in our lives. He is teaching us about eternity. Because ultimately, that's what He has given us. He has given us eternity. He is the everlasting Father. And as I said, that's why the New Testament writers insist on this flesh and blood Jesus. So that we would understand eternity begins now. Eternity begins here and now with the people in your church family, in your human family. Because it's all about the character of God, which is love. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? To love God and to love others. It's that simple. And yet we fail at it and we stumble at it and we, we don't get it right and we, you know, it just drives us crazy sometimes. And we think, God, didn't you have a better plan in mind than this? No, this is it. God is forming in you and me love. Spirituality is not a philosophical or theological discussion, it is an act. 
is an act of love. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Because that's the desired outcome. He has prepared for us an eternity, and right now he is preparing for us to be able to live in that eternity. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And then he goes on and says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Because heaven is not just a place. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with a heavenly Father who will not give up on us. And it's a relationship with other believers, other Christ followers, who we might have a tendency to give up on or who may want to give up on us. But each and every day we are given opportunities to grow in this love. Because the only way you know love is by practicing love. The only way you know forgiveness is by practicing forgiveness. The only way you know mercy is through practicing acts of mercy. The only way you know kindness is to practice kindness. So this Christmas season, this week, when you are doing your last-minute shopping and you are all stressed out because the lines have gotten longer and longer and longer and people are slow behind the cash registers and you are sitting there, God is teaching you love. Remember that. And when you were jockeying for a parking space and someone else beats you to it because you couldn't get around the end fast enough and they got it, God is teaching you love. And when you go to the theater to see a movie, the holiday movie, whatever the latest release is, and it's packed and crowded, and I only say this because I just blew it a couple of weeks ago. I scrambled for a seat and I jumped over from the back to get the two seats that were free. God is trying to teach me love. (laughs) I blow it. Because my default position is me first. It's all about me. My comfort. My ease. My parking space. (laughs) My seats at the theater. (laughs) He's saying, no, it's not about you. It's about my kingdom. It's about my family, my ever-growing, ever-learning how-to-love family. And that is the gift from our Heavenly Father. Would you bow your heads with me? This new life requires a new birth. And if you're here this morning and you've never taken that very first step of faith and say, okay, I'll give up. Okay, Lord. Make you my father. I bring my will in line with your will. I bring my desires in line with your desires. I bring my character with all of its flaws and imperfections in line with your character. Because you are the one who has loved me. You are the one 
who's forgiven you. John wrote in his gospel, to those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And if you've never taken that very first step, let me invite you this morning. Wherever you've come from, whatever you've been doing, whatever your life is like, there is a loving Father who wants you as a part of His family. So much so that He loved us through His Son. And in a very simple prayer, understand you've been loved by God like you've never been loved before. Give in to His love. Lord, forgive me. Turn me around. Make me a part of your family. Change me, my character. Become more like you, my Heavenly Father. In a very simple prayer like that, yield up your own rights and bring yourself in line with Him. You offer up the sin that destroyed the relationship in the first place and let Him forgive it. And you put your life in his hands. If you've made that choice before, but the circumstances of your life make you wonder if anything's really changing, he's not giving up on you. This morning, maybe your prayer is just simply, okay, Lord, I've been off on my own, doing my own thing. I need to get back in line to get back in with you and your family. Whatever your prayer this morning, let's close together. Thank you for your love, O oh Lord. Gracious, loving, compassionate, and good Heavenly Father. Make us your children more and more conform to your likeness, more and more living out your love in tangible ways with each other, and in that, to demonstrate a real change of heart that comes only by you. This morning, Lord, we offer up our faults, our mistakes, our blunders, our sins. We ask for your forgiveness and your restoration. And now, Lord, your character to be at work within us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 